Women's Health Melbourne is a boutique specialist fertility and women's health practice, caring for women at all life stages. We're proud to provide world-class holistic medical care, including IVF and a range of other fertility treatments. We provide our patients with every opportunity to achieve their goals. Our two Melbourne locations are in Fitzroy and our new state-of-the-art Caulfield practice. Reach us at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au and you can follow both Women's Health Melbourne and Dr Rayleigh Alou on the socials. Welcome, Lil, to today's episode of Knocked Up. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for coming. We've really been looking forward to having you on. It's a bit of a different episode today. Often we have medical experts, but today we sort of just wanted to have a bit of a conversation about how how things have been changing and, I guess, society a little bit. And we love your commentary and thought, it would be a bit of a pleasure to have you on. Absolutely. And I'm happy to be here. (laughs) Remotely in COVID times. I actually wanted to start with something I heard from your podcast last, from your episode last week of Bobo and Flex, where, and I sort of hate to quote you back to yourself because I think if someone did that to me, I would hate it so much, but I'm going to do it. And your quote that I loved in regards to people getting advice from non-experts, whether it be friends or online, was that the stakes are so high for the person asking for the advice, but so low for those giving it. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're someone who's going through the mental anguish of trying to conceive, you're wanting to get advice from everywhere. And that advice can be as harmless as it's important to eat the core of a pineapple, that straight after a frozen egg transfer, you should be eating McDonald's fries. That's another Embryo one. Embryo transfer. And, and a cheeseburger. And a cheeseburger. Oh, so, right. There you go. <laughs> to probably some far more harmful things like if you're getting older, no, you don't need help no one's infertile. I don't know. These are just random things I'm I'm saying. And that can cost someone their opportunity to have a baby, especially if they're getting older. Mm. When it comes to advice, what do you look for? I mean, it's a tricky one because I've definitely been in the position where I was quite loose with the advice I was giving in the sense that I didn't take into consideration that the person on the receiving end didn't experience life the same way I did, didn't have the same biology, the same privilege, the same resource, the same perspective, and all of these things really do impact the way you receive um, quote-unquote good advice, right? I used to really rely on my peers, um, people who I thought were like-minded to give me advice because what I would consider good advice in the past was advice that made me feel the best at the time, (laughs) So if it touched that spot that, you know, if it touched the spot, then I thought, you know, this is right for me. Now I'm in the position where I've had to be more discerning with who is even um, appropriate to give said advice. I mean, we make icons out of anyone. We put anyone on a pedestal these days and we're not in the business of fact checking. I mean, unless you're in a field or an environment where uh, facts remain uh, superior to feelings, then we just go about saying what we think, hoping that, you know, it doesn't harm anyone. So I really look for a certain sense of objectivity. I mean, it's really hard to be completely objective about anything. We're people and we're human and how we feel will impact what we believe. But someone who can really use a critical lens to remove themselves from the situation and analyse the data that I'm giving them, but can also be um, self-aware to understand that I may not be giving all the right information, who can ask me questions, who can help me troubleshoot, um, who's patient enough to know when I just need a soundboard and I actually don't need advice. Um, So it's a lot of things. And I think above all, I prefer going to professionals. I mean, I I think there's advice that's well-meaning when it comes from just lived experience. Like, you know, 
I want to buy a house. Let me go to a friend who's in my age group who's also bought a house. That's fantastic. But that's not the only source of information that I need. I need a professional and an expert or someone who has dedicated their time, energy, money, and resource to finding correct answers. Um, and I don't know when we started to stigmatize professional help, but it's definitely happened. <laughs> and it's not really ideal. Yeah, the, the influencers have become the advice givers despite no qualification. And it, it's, I mean, I can understand, again, there's a certain amount of, um, how do I explain it? Um, there's a lot of pressure going to a professional. Nobody wants to feel dumb or out of the loop or feel as though they're not being seen. So I understand going to a peer who can just level with you one-to-one. Um, and I guess that comes down to our preconceived ideas of, experts and professionals being better or other that they wouldn't understand our common human average problems because they're operating at far higher levels of you know realization or expertise or consciousness it's almost as though like professionals and experts need a bit of PR a little bit of positive PR (laughs) Um, (laughs) yeah you know so um and you can only really get to that point when you've had a really rewarding experience with a professional that didn't leave you feeling less than after the fact. Absolutely. I think that's really important to know. So, Lil, I was just going to say, you've become an amazing pop culture icon and an Instagram superstar. And one of the things that you've been really famous for is being very image positive uh, of your femininity and also in terms of being very open, honest, and also, I guess, a leader in female sexuality. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came to that point? Oh, yes. Um, it was, definitely wasn't done with intention at all. I think it might have just been a happy coincidence. I was in a time where um, I was struggling with how to present myself digitally knowing that I was commodifying myself um, as a person, but also a business. And I was struggling with, you know, what's appropriate to talk about online? What is inappropriate to talk about online? Where can I draw those lines? And do lines need to be drawn when I literally make money off being myself? Um, And so I remember when I started my podcast, Bobo and Flex, um, we talk about like the human condition and philosophy and psychology and, you know, just general pop culture. Um, But, as you can imagine, when you're speaking to millennials, the conversation goes quickly to dating and sex. And the rhetoric around that conversation was the reason why people who identify as female aren't having gratifying sexual experiences is because of men. Men can't find the clitoris. Men aren't patient. Men aren't kind. Men don't know how to um, think outside of themselves. And it was getting really damaging to hear that the overwhelming majority felt this way. And so at one point I said to someone, you know, you do realize that you have access to your body outside of the context of sex and you too are allowed to look at your bits and try things and touch things and move things. And you too can, like you too can find pleasure outside of this experience. That's obviously so terrible for you. And so when I started to, I guess, express this alternate point of view, people were like, well, why would I look at my my clitoris out of the context of sex? Why do I need to talk about my pleasure out of the context of a man not giving it to me? And so I thought, okay, if I'm going to have constructive and effective conversations about, you know, sexual liberation and female empowerment and hookup culture, then I have to understand if my audience is on the same page. So it was just a point of doing my due diligence, but the more I tried to uncover or unpack the more I realized that people just weren't aware of themselves and their own anatomy and their own biology and it was very odd and very overwhelming and so because I had to give context to every conversation I was having it kind of came to be that I was educating by proxy which was never my intention because I just want to chat (laughs) I just want to have a chat and exchange some stories but I needed to ensure that all this um, labor I was doing wasn't falling on deaf ears. And so that's how it came to be. And the more I started speaking about uh, my own personal sexual experience, um, because people were, I guess, impressed that I wasn't speaking hypothetically, I was speaking about the sex I was having, the orgasm I had, the trauma that I had been through, um, that people were like, why can you help me? 
obviously I can't, but I thought through storytelling that would be enough and then I could point people in the direction that I went to when I was having issues kind of like leaning into my sexuality from purely a female experience and not like a heteronormative patriarchal blah, blah, blah. (laughs) So, you know, this has a great deal of... um has a great deal of overlap into my field of fertility medicine because I see a lot of women, particularly women, who are not in a relationship and are getting to the stage of life where they're thinking about having babies. And this is just kind of like the cusp of the millennial generation now. You know, Geordie and I are both kind of the exit end of the Gen X generation and, you know, women of our age who are unpartnered in their early 40s uh, really thinking about well whether they they go it alone, and it seems to me that women who are in this area who are dating in at this age in in late thirties early forties find it very hard to partner much harder than earlier in that the, the same women might have found at a, at an earlier age. Can you tell us how attitudes towards sex? are changing and what are the expectations of singles at the moment um, perhaps in relation to this this what seems to be quite a growing problem? Absolutely so I mean it would be fair to say that since maybe 2012-13 there's just been a really huge social shift a huge cultural shift you know a lean towards academics and understanding of hierarchies and class and how all of these things intersect and affect the life that you're living. And so naturally, you know, as we do, we want to understand the concepts that are around us, especially if they affect us. And one that came to the forefront very quickly was this idea of feminism. You know, are we feminists? Are we not? What does it mean to identify? How do you practice? And then naturally, um, that conversation of feminism got conflated with sexuality and sexual liberation, and then that got kind of conflated into hookup culture. And so, you know, through this really open and honest discussion about what it is to identify as a woman, what is womanhood, what is sisterhood, it became, in order to reclaim this femininity that the patriarchy has taken from you, you need to have all this power. And so we we start to notice that people are presuming that power is, you know, sexual dominance because that's an area where history has shown that women have always had a one-up. You know, men will do anything for, or straight men will, quote-unquote, do anything um, to be with a woman. And so it's been interesting to see that the height of, you know, liberation or quote-unquote wokeness for women is so closely tied into that sexual transaction Um, and only now are people realizing that hookup culture and the idea of how um, how we value ourselves is so heavily tied into how we see womanhood it's very odd but when it comes to the changing ideas of sex and dating it's all over the place because I feel like for so long millennials whatever you want to call them were so harsh about traditional relationships you know like we would never you know get tied down in a relationship and we would prefer to do things differently because our parents or their parents you know were so regressive and didn't realize their power and blah 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 blah. and that kind of manifests (laughs) it manifests really odd when you get to an age where you start to make decisions in the same way that your parents might have because it's not all that simple partnership is not simple dating is not simple sex is definitely not simple and how you kind of like navigate all of that plus being a human is not simple at all so I think right now a lot of us are fighting between what we said we would do the realities of what we actually need to do um, and the options that we have it is if you if you think this generation has been told and the one below that they can have anything do anything their life can be anything they want it to be and everyone's gone out and done that but what about having a family and then what like you said you know we look at our parents and we think oh no we don't want that we don't want that but then we do want a family and this has some impact on fertility ultimately Absolutely. And it's one of those things where how deeply can you think about that when I think a lot about what it is to be a young adult or even an adult is just feeling invincible. You step into this power uh, because I feel like so much of adolescence is 
conflated with oppression. I can't do what I want to when I want to. I can't go where I want to when I want to. I can't be who I want when I want. And suddenly you're an adult and you're stepping into your power and you're like, oh, I can do anything when I want at all times. And then suddenly you get humbled as you age. You're like, wow, it really isn't that simple. There's still, you know, um, these standards or these rules that I thought were arbitrary really do govern my life, whether or not I think they do, which is really like, it's eye opening. Absolutely. Like I'm almost 40 and people say 40 is the new 30, which it's not, but it's especially not (laughs) when it comes to fertility because, (laughs) because your fertility is almost gone by 40, regardless of your lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Look, I think, I mean, I think it's what you said also has illustrated a bit of a point that when you are at a certain age, you might feel like having a family as a single mum is something that's just off your radar. But I help many women these days to have a family as a single parent, start a single parent family, because really when a woman relies on being in a partnership to have a family and she's not in a partnership and she's approaching, you know, his, her mid-30s, early 40s, you know, for many women you have to make a bit of a decision. Do I have a baby uh, in a non-ideal situation from my previous perspective or my previous lens or do I not have a baby or do I put off my choice or ability to have a baby with my own genetic material, with my own egg And do I prioritise having a partner in the relationship or having a partner's, it's almost like prioritising the sperm DNA of an unknown male future potential partner over your own egg DNA when you have a limited. Absolutely. I mean, when I speak about, you know, motherhood or having my own children, it is from such a traditional lens. I'm going to have sex with a man and then carry his baby. And these all feel like really legitimate things to do when you're in a relationship, but also nowhere near that point in your life either. Um, And so the alternatives, uh, I was speaking to Geordie earlier about this, about how it's so easy to feel progressive about the alternatives when it isn't your situation currently. So how you can say with your full chest, of course, I would consider the alternatives. And I don't mind that, you know, it might not be my egg DNA or the sperm of my partner. And it's all fine and dandy when in reality, it's not really a concept that I think many of us, myself included, has thought about at length. You know, do I value or would I value motherhood the same way if I'm not in this process of giving birth to, quote unquote, my child? It's one of those things where I personally feel like I am setting up my life to prioritize motherhood in a way because I'm quite a career driven person, but I knew that in a traditional career path I couldn't have both things (laughs) and so being in an environment where I've been able to commodify myself and build a career of being me eventually when that life path changes it's natural for me to share this and it's natural for me to build or garner an audience who's also interested in me Lil Flex being a mother and I couldn't do that working an office job in PR with everyone forcing me to drink alcohol all day and do drugs. So <laughs> it, um, it's, it's, it's interesting. I would like to say I'm open-minded, but I, I don't even know the process. But I feel as though my urge to be a mother I, far outweighs the process of, quote-unquote, naturally, biologically having a baby. And I think, as you said, when you realise, or as Geordie mentioned, when you realize as you are getting older and your options are getting far fewer, you start to think, oh, well, am I really prioritizing the DNA of an unknown man over what I want so dearly? It becomes a lesson or sort of, yeah, a lesson in prioritization and what's actually important. And I also think the critical, like critically thinking your way down to the root of your motivation, like, do I want this thing, a child? Yes. Why? Because of X, Y, Z. Why? And when you keep on asking yourself why until you get to the bottom, you'll start to realize what your barriers actually are and what your motivations actually are. And I guess that also illuminates what your options are. Can you tell us a little bit about how the internet and uh, our smartphones have influenced the way that we date and a little bit about how 
can we find that old-fashioned romance if we're hankering for it in today's society with Tinder and Bumble being where people tend to meet each other? Yeah, dating is interesting. It really is a battlefield. And I find that people who aren't actively engaging in modern dating really can't comprehend all of the hoops and the barriers you need to overcome. Dating sucks, Will. Just say it. It sucks. (laughs) But not only that, it's just, it's a bizarre practice. It feels like, how do I explain it? It almost feels like insanity because you really do have to do the same thing over and over and over and over and over again to expect a different result. So I can't say I've I've ever been actively dating in a time where online dating wasn't the norm. Of course, I've heard stories of the, you know, going to bars and just meeting people. And maybe there was a little bit of that, but there was always the injection of social media to kind of boost your dating cachet. You know, you had cool pictures or a cool profile, or cool, pre- cool friends or any of those things. These days, what's happening is because of online dating, we've realized how big the dating pool is. When you didn't have access to Tinder or Bumble or Hinge or any of those things, your dating pool was literally who you had access to. So if you weren't in a big city or if you um, weren't able to travel or you weren't considered conventionally attractive or you only were friends with people who are in relationships, like that inhibits who you can date. Now we've had our eyes open and we've realized, wow, the world really is our oyster. What's happened is we've all assumed that there is something better there for us because we're acutely aware of all the options we never had before. So it's not as though we've, as a society, we've all elevated and suddenly we're more eligible. We're just acutely aware of the fact that if we do date one person, there are options elsewhere. I also think that for all the time that we've stigmatized traditional relationships, we stigmatized marriage, we we stigmatized like heteronormativity, we stigmatized, you know, get like uh, settling down early. We've stigmatized it so much that now we're in the actual stage of dating. We're kind of like, well, what are we asking from people? Elevated friendship, friendship with sex. Like what is, what are we asking for? And this lack of um, clarity really clouds the dating pool because you're going on these apps assuming that everybody's here for the same thing but very few people know what they want and of those who do very few are in a position to ask for it because you're dealing with people who think they have more options than they actually do the people who are on dating apps aren't your options they're just people (laughs) but when you're on I can't tell you how much I'm loving this When you're on these apps and you're constantly, this is, this is the thing. You could be a conventionally attractive person by any standards and you could go out into the real world and not get any attention from anyone. Nobody's asking for your number or asking or telling you you're beautiful, but you get on a dating app and you have suddenly options, compliments on compliments. Like it's insane. And so suddenly you get an ego boost, but that ego boost is quickly diffused when you realize that everyone here is just playing a game of stroking egos. Who can stroke whose ego until, until when, until forever? It's so odd. And it's, and it's, it's just, it's weird. And I think what happens is when you are somebody who is quite um, hopeful about the the online dating experience, um, you have to start, for lack of a better word, playing the game, because whether or not you like it, you are inserted into that game mentality. You might not be the person who is just there to get their ego stroked, but you become the recipient of someone who is. And so you start to learn that behavior. It really is quantity over quality. And I don't think many of us have been in a position where we've really had to, we've really had to like, how do I explain this? I think about all of my friends who are so critical of the dating pool, but aren't bringing much to the table. But that isn't known to them because they're more concerned with critiquing the pool that exists as opposed to being like, how can I be a better person to date? How do I engage with better people? How do I sort of like nut out the weirdos and find the person I want to be with? It's just odd. I know that in theory, when I think about how dating used to happen, walking up to people, whatever, I clam up. That sounds insane to me. But it honestly feels like it would be easier because that was a societal priority. 
you all had to get married. You all had to have children. And so everybody was on the same page. Now it seems like no one is on the same page, but we're feigning. (laughs) We're feigning it. (laughs) And you invested a lot in Saturday night. You know, you had to wait till Saturday. You got dressed up. You spent a lot of money going out. You were going to make the most of being out. It's just so bizarre. Fear is a strong word, but I'm always very, very mindful of the people who are entering the dating pool for the first time and not realizing just how bizarre it is. It really, it could make the most confident person feel disillusioned because it really is just having to navigate a sea of egos. People have very little care. I think people struggle to humanize Uh, the people they look at through their phone. They're just 2D figures with 2D smiles and 2D profiles and who cares, you know? Um, And so I feel like there's our flippant attitude towards dating really mirrors our flippant attitude towards each other. There's no sense of community under capitalism. We're not looking out for each other. I don't have the best interest of my neighbor or the, the shopkeeper. And that's really reflected in how flippant we can treat each other online. I mean, I was so thankful when I finally met my partner and I was like, wow, I found a person who doesn't regard me as a fetish or, you know, like, um, like a sex toy or something. And it sounds bizarre, but you've got to wonder. It's little things. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And look, as a woman, we say that, our greatest erogenous zone is our brain. And to many women, a quick transaction or a meeting without intimacy doesn't really acknowledge that. How do women these days who, I mean, I certainly am all kind of into women owning their sexuality and being satisfied. And I I certainly make no moral judgment on a transactional sexual encounter. I'm very lucky. I've been with my partner for a long time. I've never dated, like you said, you've never dated without the internet and apps and, you know, kind of the, the 2D uh, first meeting. I've never dated in that, in that environment. And I, I just, I see it as such an amazing cultural change. And I just, um, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's challenging. It's such an amazing challenge. I, I'm just not sure that it's for the better. Yeah, I don't know if it's for the better or worse, but it just is. And I don't know if we're ever in a position to revert back to what it was because uh, it's just, it's just, it's a natural evolution of self. I mean, I can definitely understand the approach of leading with the brain first because, you know, you do get better results when you're leading with the mind and having an open conversation. But I think we're also not taking into, into consideration when you are the person leading with love and openness and intellect and you're on the receiving end of someone who's leading with sexuality. And you're like, I I don't know how to meet you halfway and I'm trying really hard. But now it's almost like you have to, you really have to be so resilient and you have to be the most vulnerable and open person to really get through to the people you're engaging with. And this is not not really a gendered conversation because I feel like any gender can see the struggles of online dating. It really is difficult to find someone who's going to meet you um, at your level because we're all operating um, from a scarcity mindset because what's that rhetoric? Like all the good ones are taken, you know, like, oh, nothing but trash on these dating apps. Oh, if I find one, it's one in a million. So from operating um, in a scarcity mindset, that does affect the way we're coming across. And we might not be giving people as much time as they need to show us who they really are because we are running out of it. (laughs) And so if it's not your own internal clock, it's the world around you. It's, It's like everything is reminding us that we don't have as much time as we want. And yes, we could take care and slow down and and be um, more mindful and try and um, lead with conversation, but it's just, there's so much pressure. Uh, And I really commend anyone who, who has done that transition from dating, you know, as we did quote unquote back in the day to now, because it, it's just incredible. You really see the best and worst of people. In the 80s and 90s, everyone was scared by AIDS and HIV. Like we, were, we were terrified and we, Rayleigh and I were probably a little bit young, but 
I'd say we we do remember the ads with the Grim Reaper, and unprotected sex was just so taboo, right? It just it's just it never happened, but it's changing. Unprotected sex is not uncommon. As a young person, Lil, why do you think it's changed? Well, I think it goes back to what I said about the invincibility of being uh, a young adult or an adult, you know, transitioning and developing this like general hubris where you feel like nothing can affect you. And we're teetering the the line of leisure and pleasure meets danger. (laughs) And a lot of us don't know where that line is. I think that for as sexually liberated as um, our generations can come across, we're lacking so much sexual education. I don't think it's a conscious, educated decision to go without any protection or anything. I don't think it's conscious. I don't think it's educated. I think it's ignorance. And I think it's blissful ignorance because everybody feels above the consequence. What's the worst that could happen? What's the worst that could happen? And even if something were to happen, too many people aren't comfortable with getting sexual health checkups or seeing um, their GP or their OBGYN. So you're never knowing and just assuming that everybody but you is the person acting in danger and everybody but you is endangering people. It's when I speak to um, my friends of mine, the women who participate in unprotected sex and, and have justifications for it, a lot of them, it's interesting because when I was younger, it was the men who would try and justify. It feels better. I feel closer to you and so on and so forth. And suddenly it's warped into the woman saying, you know, I feel I feel like um, it, it's a litmus test for people who want to just use me versus someone who's like interested in my own health and my own protection and sort of running, running circles around the logic. <laughs> You know, I remember doing a poll on my Instagram story to ask who of my following used the pullout method. And of the 6,000 or 7,000 that responded, it was 75%. And a lot of the justification would have been ease, you know, like it's just so much easier. I don't want to ruin the mood. Some said it was a financial burden to have to buy condoms. Some said it was... um, uh, they were on the pill, so they didn't need to, as if that, you know. Um, <laughs> not judging, not judging. Very risky. But I also, what I thought to be really interesting, despite the responses that I got, was that every conversation that I chose to engage with, everybody was really defensive. Everybody's really defensive. And so I feel like when you become aware of how uneducated or how dangerous you might be acting, you double down. <laughs> you know, you're kind of like, it's fine. I love it. This is great. This is what I want to do as opposed to thinking about the alternative. So I don't know. It's an interesting one. I don't think anyone has a really, um, a really well thought out justification for it. So I'm like, just say you, just say you like danger. It's fine. (laughs) Um, From my perspective, I just, um, you know, I kind of, it's a little bit, it's, it's sad for me because we saw such an improvement in things like chlamydia and things like, you know, syphilis is is back, you know, syphilis was out, now it's in, you know, all of these infectious diseases that, you know, can impair fertility and can cause lots of problems, they can gonorrhea, you know, we're seeing them again, and we have to test everyone now, because they're around, and they're getting passed around. And, you know, one take home message for women listening in terms of thinking about unprotected sex, it's not just about pregnancy, you know, we've got some great contraception out there, you know, there's the marina and the copper IUD, there's Implanon, there are, you know, Nuva Ring, there's lots of long acting, really reliable contraceptive devices. And we can also now get direct access to the morning after pill. So if you have a, a slip up and, you know, you do have, you know, in, you know, quote unquote, the condom breaks, which doesn't happen that often. Um, it, it happens, in inverted commas, happens more often than it actually happens. Um, you can go to the pharmacy and get that over the counter. And, you know, so it, we're, we're pretty good at avoiding unplanned pregnancy, but things like STIs can really cause havoc for fertility and it causes havoc 10 years from when the initial infection happens. So, yeah, I, I think we. I think you're right. I think we have to get right back on that train with education. And I also think, you know, with the contraception education, people are pretty pretty reasonably good at that. But 
you know, we don't educate about how to get pregnant when people want to get pregnant. One of our most listened to episodes on this podcast is one of our first, which is the old fashioned way, how to have sex to get pregnant. And um, I think a lot of people learn very early in life how not to get pregnant, but they have no idea when it comes to trying to get pregnant and they want to, how to make that happen. Uh, And also the age at which fertility naturally declines is vastly underestimated by a lot of a lot of women and men. Mm, I would have never considered, and you're so right. Well, I think it comes down to education. I mean, we all like to think we're well, well, we are well read. Sorry, um, but a lot of us did our last learning in high school, maybe uni. Very few of us are proactively googling and researching and drawing, you know, smart conclusions. It's just kind of living and word of mouth and headlines and fear mongering and. I don't know, I think most of us or a lot of people struggle with just being, not knowing. And so we double down and we're like, we'll just do it the way we know how because we know best. We've been alive this long. And yeah, I think it takes um, a very humble person to admit they don't know and then to go and proactively source the information they need. But I also think because of the way we've been institutionalized to learn, we're so used to having a teacher, a lecturer, a person who's going to give us the information, whether or not we want to, right? Like we were all forced to learn before we, before we, before we even knew we wanted to. So I feel like most of us are just waiting for somebody to disseminate the information. And I guess that's where influencer culture becomes so rampant because influencers are how you trying to keep their social media analytics up um, and educating is just another way to do that and you've got an audience who's thirsty for information and is relying on these uh, people to give it to them yeah that's that's one of the reasons we started this podcast because there's been you know a lot of a vacuum of, of this kind of information I remember sex ed at school this is obviously way before I had a medical education and my my kind of leading memory is you know, putting a condom on a banana, like that's kind of a little bit about what sex education was when I was in school. And I certainly don't remember having any education about, you know, the fact that, you know, when we turn 35, our fertility rapidly declines and that our egg count lowers and that maybe we should try and have our babies before that happens. And I really remember having absolutely zero education about that and so I assume and I think I paid attention so like I, I really don't think there was very much at all do you re- what did you recall Geordie or, of or anatomy well the, exactly the same the only thing I remember was the condom on the banana and that was like you knew in year eight that's what you were gonna you were gonna you couldn't wait to have that class because it was just so controversial but at no stage did we learn about anatomy or how it should feel or pleasure or why you would do it. It was just how to use a condom on a yeah, piece of Yeah, there fruit. certainly wasn't any talk about female pleasure. And it kind of feels rebellious to still have these conversations. I mean, when I initially started talking about my own pleasure, it was only because that's what I was currently interested in. You know, I was in a position where I was like, why can I only – climax in certain positions like what is that about and so I started googling you know why can I only why do I prefer to use a toy not my hand why do I clam up when I'm having sex and I can't come all of these things just drew me to google and so when I was explaining this information I was so surprised the amount of people who had been experiencing experiencing it for far longer than I had and thought not to research and thought not to reach out to somebody it's interesting we can normalize our experience so much because it's common to us because we're experiencing it so frequently that it must just be the norm and I think breaking out of that and um I don't know it's like this conversation admitting like yeah what did we learn in sex ed I don't remember anything it's not for my I think I learned everything from my mum she said you're gonna get your period soon let me know what happens there'll be some blood in your underwear and men only want you for sex so make sure you're really discerning about who you hang out with that was it (laughs) and so I me at my all-girl school being like, guys, do you don't hang out with these guys? They only want you for sex. They don't want any friends. <laughs> but we get there. We get there eventually. We do. It's true. I've heard you speak beautifully about self-care before. To our listeners who maybe need to be reminded, 
could you speak beautifully to them about self-care a little bit and how regardless of what the goal is, sometimes we need to look after ourselves along the way? Absolutely. I mean, I don't know about you, but feeling good is a priority to me. And I didn't realize it wasn't a priority to most people until the conversation about self-care came to be. And for a short while there, it was really productive. You know, it is the reminder that despite your situation, you are a person that needs to be treated well, that needs to be cared for and tended to and loved. And we kind of assume that throughout our day-to-day process, that'll happen naturally, right? Somewhere in the day, I'll remember to treat myself well, of course. But in the same way, you haven't remembered that load of washing or you haven't remembered to read that book you got for Christmas. It's the same way you'll start to not prioritize things that just make you feel like yourself. Also, as we begin to grow older and prioritize different things, we start to prioritize things that have a direct beneficial outcome. You know, like we pay our bills because we know the lights will stay on and that's good. We go to work so we can make money. We, you know, pursue relationships because, you know, society tells us that's important. But for the other covert things that don't really seem like they have a direct value, like just taking time to not do anything, we don't realize or it's hard to justify why we prioritize those over other things. My mum always used to tell me that, She's obviously religious, so let me try and take the religious aspect out of it. But she always used to tell me that you're so lucky to be you and you're so lucky to be alive. There is no way, like there are tons of people, or not people because they're not alive, who don't get to do what you do, who don't get to breathe, think, experience, laugh, have sex, run, eat, and you get to do all of that and you're in this position where you've forgotten how much of a blessing that is just to wake up and be yourself is amazing. And so if you can take your some time to cherish what that experience is, you'll start looking at life really, really differently. She also put me onto this whole idea of gratitude. And she's like, I don't want you to get into the space of deluding yourself and pretending that your life is amazing when it's not. But I can guarantee that on any given day, you can name three things that make your life worth living. And it could be so minor, like the fact that you get to have freshly squeezed orange juice and that gives you a lust for life or the fact that you have friends and family who really care that you are you, who really value your life and your opinions and the experiences they have with you. All of these things are so important. And if you can remind yourself, not when you're in trials and tribulations and in strife, but every time, um, if you can remind yourself often that you are important and the life you're living is important, it'll do wonders for your situation. I agree a hundred percent with what you're saying. I think when when I see a couple who come to see me for fertility advice, one of the things I think about is their resources because we all have limited resources. And I'm not talking about financial resources. I'm talking about their goals and how I can help them get to their goal, uh, whether that's a baby or whether it's to meet their expectation of trying really hard to have a baby if they have deal breakers but one thing that can help me help them to have a baby if having a baby is their ultimate goal is sometimes the use of donor egg donor sperm or donor embryo because if we think a little bit outside the square of conventional baby making there are so many other possibilities that can help people who get to a brick wall when it comes to that conventional sense or even that conventional sense with the maximum help of things like IVF. How do you think the current generation feels towards alternate pathways to parenthood? Because there's been intense stigma in past generations, particularly around the use of donor eggs. Mm. I would presume that there's an openness to it. But I definitely think that the amount of brain space the average person in my generation is putting towards pregnancy and alternate forms is so low. (laughs) Like we're we're still getting past, you know, wanting to be in relationships. That feels like a huge hurdle to climb where we went from years of saying like, you know, we're just fine being alone because like relationships are traumatic and then suddenly we're all yearning. And so we're getting over that milestone. I would, yeah, I would assume that we would be, open to it but I think there's I wouldn't say a lack of yeah I'd say there's a lack of understanding I mean how do you know what you don't know I think most of us aren't even aware of when we want to have kids and if we can have kids and what will happen if we can't have a kid and how do we have a kid 
And I don't know if many of us will get to the point of thinking about it critically until we're in a situation where our options feel as though they've been taken away from us. That's the situation that the current generation, I think, has with egg freezing. I, I see, I mean, the ideal age to freeze eggs is, I think, under 30 or close to 30. But, and th- there's a good reason for that. I mean, when we mate, we've got all the eggs we're ever going to have for a lifetime formed when we're still in utero. And they start to decline in number, but more importantly, in quality significantly from age 35, but even from before. And so I think, you know, you don't want to take every teenager through egg freezing because 90% are going to get pregnant naturally at that stage if they want to and most are not even thinking about it, let alone have the, you know, privilege of having the economic ability to freeze eggs. But I think if a woman is, you know, around 30 and she has no immediate plans to have a family, that's a fantastic time to think about egg freezing because she's probably still got a lot of eggs and she's got eggs of reasonably high quality. Whereas five years flash forward when kind of people hear, oh, 35 fertility declines rapidly, Mm. they're actually really behind the eight ball because fertility has already declined quite a lot. And it's gone to the point where at least 50% of the eggs we have cannot make a baby from the get go, let alone the rest of the process. Mm. Uh, So I see a lot of women who, a lot of women in their mid-30s who are kind of just a little bit beyond the ideal age to freeze eggs who are really wanting to freeze eggs. What can we do to kind of be able to communicate that information to the current generation? It's a real difficulty, I think, because... Our culture is when, when we're not thinking about having babies, we're not thinking about having babies and we're not kind of future future planning. And yet the age of first motherhood is pushing further and further you know, into the 30s. The average age of, of having a baby now for the first time is about 32, 33. And when you think that that's the average, that's the mean, 50% of women are beyond the mean on either side. So that means at least 50% of women are having babies quite close to the time where fertility actually starts to decline. And it's not necessarily just the age where you have your first baby. The age that you have your first baby dictates the age where you have your subsequent children. And so if you put off having your first baby, it inevitably means you put off having your second or third baby, or it might mean that you can't have a second or third baby, even if you can have your first. Where is fertility on most young women's radar at the moment? I mean, I would say it's quite low. I feel like at one point there was there was no casual way to talk about sex that wasn't stigmatized. And then we got to a point where the only way to talk about sex is in a really destigmatized way. I think that will inevitably and needs to happen with the conversation around fertility. The conversation feels um, or can feel quite heavy and quite loaded because our connotation of a conversation about fertility is that it didn't happen to you naturally and therefore you're one of the others. And it's hard to have a conversation about the othered experience because it's driven by fear because nobody wants to be the other. Nobody wants to have the hard time, the difficult time. Nobody wants the exception story. They all want to have the romanticized ideal version of getting pregnant. I had sex. It was super easy. I got pregnant, no complications, had a baby, super healthy, and then we move on. And I don't think we've given a lot of room in mainstream media or in social media for the alternate story. And so I think it does require like a lot of leaders and thought leaders in that area who are accessible to their audience. So that is kind of like the influencer, the down-to-earth expert who's like, hey, <laughs> I don't know if you've thought about this, but you're getting close. Because if it's not, I mean, if not for this conversation, I mean, I wouldn't have been illuminated to the facts. And so I think everybody, I think we also need to assume that most people are further away from this line of thinking than we realise. While I can see there's the general openness for this conversation, I don't know who'd be leading it and who'd be championing it and who'd be reminding people that it's a priority because for a lot of other verticals, there are people who lead and champion and prioritize who keep it front of mind. And that's what this conversation needs. Well, I think we have a champion in Raylia. We just need to tell people about her. (laughs) Absolutely. 
and also yeah it's 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 also the context of when it's spoken about I mean at one point we were only speaking about sex when we were having sex <laughs> and then now it's been normal to speak about sex out of the context of sex with people you wouldn't have sex with and it's amazing and it's normal and it's open um and I guess you know we, as individuals it's hard to take credit for that because society made that possible maybe pop culture even made that possible um and so it's almost having um representation for a narrative that's this narrative <laughs> it's it affects more people than they realize I think that's what's um not being understood yeah and also I think another major major pink elephant in the room in talking specifically about female fertility is that people don't want to talk about fertility and raise the issue that women might be having babies in their 20s and 30s because hey what about the job consequences and productivity consequences and employment consequences and you know institutions and organizations having to actually put their money where their mouth is in terms of supporting equality for women in terms of equal pay equal rights facilitating return to work around family you know we are so behind in all of those conversations and I think that's possibly one of the reasons that talking about female fertility is so stigmatized because women are scared that people might know the great secret that they're trying to have a baby because they don't want to lose their job they don't want to be looked over for a promotion they don't want to have uh you know kind of opportunities given to other people because oh she might go off and get pregnant you know it's it's I think so much bigger than just the biology although the biology is important I agree. I agree. There are so many layers. (laughs) I just, I'm trying to think of like how, yeah, how do you make something a priority to people who, so the vast majority of those who, who need to hear this conversation, they're not even thinking about pregnancy or motherhood, let alone complications with doing so. So while they may easily hear the information, will they value it once heard? Well, that's our challenge. (laughs) Thank you so much again. We've been talking for an hour, so we are so excited that you um, gave us your time and we have loved, loved, loved having you. Lil, where can our listeners find you if they want more? Uh, You can find me on my Instagram, which is a haven for everything that I do. And my Instagram is flex, F-L-E-X, full stop, mommy, M-A-M-I. Wonderful. Thank you so much again, Lil. My pleasure.